Valerie is my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the Soundtrack Series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. It's the all-studio show. Let me explain. We're doing a little, uh, little experiment. For this show, I'm doing my usual bit, like I always do, which I always do in my studio. But the story, which we usually take from the live shows, also going to be in studio. That'll be later on. It is actor Brian Silliman telling us in great detail exactly why musical theater and sports do not mix, not now, not ever. I don't care what TV show you're watching. I don't care what Glee tells you. If in the middle of a basketball game, one or more of the players start singing and dancing about getting their heads in the game, I imagine they'd get some kind of penalty. Because if you're singing, dancing, or both, your head is most likely not in the game. Your head is in musical theater, and musical theater and sports do not go together, and more importantly, should never be done at the same time. I have a dent in my leg as physical proof. But first... We'll remember always graduation day. I don't know, let's talk about it's graduation season. I actually was not conscious of this. I mean, I know that this is when people graduate, is like May, June, but I don't have any reason to to be invested in that, really. The reason that I was more aware of it this time around or that I've been thinking about it at all is because I was talking to my mom the other day and she had just gone to a graduation, but it was whoever it was that graduated, graduated from the high school that I went to. And it was just interesting to hear her talk about this ceremony and then think about my own high school graduation, you know, up against this other one. First of all, when I graduated high school, it was 1996, full disclosure. So it's almost 20 years ago. And we just did it outside on the the track or whatever, on the football field, just, you know, right behind the school. Boom, graduation. It was a nice night. Fine. This graduation was at Stabler Arena. Stabler Arena is a venue, you know, where if a band is touring and they're coming through the Lehigh Valley, that's where they're going to play is Stabler Arena. So that's fancy. But she was telling me just all this stuff about like who spoke and like what the graduation speeches were about and different things like that. And I couldn't help but think about my own experience at this time. I High school graduation is the only one I really remember very distinctly. I don't remember my college graduation. And this is unfortunate, by the way. P.S. I went to the University of the Arts, who has since been having amazing speakers. Neil Gaiman, his Make Good Art speech came from that graduation speech, the University of the Arts a couple of years ago. Why couldn't that have been me and my class? All I remember is there was maybe this like parade that was kind of Mummers-esque because this was Philadelphia. And then I don't know. I, I don't remember. I don't remember almost anything about it. Sorry, you arts. Don't remember. But I very distinctly remember my high school graduation for, for a couple of reasons. One is the national anthem. Now, I, and this is actually what kicked off this, this whole memory for me, because when I was talking to my mom about the graduation ceremony that she just went to, she was saying how just how things were different from when I graduated and then now. And she was saying how, well, you know, like when you graduated, I think your class song was with a little help from my friends. And, you know, you can't go wrong with the Beatles. But their class song this year, this year in 2015, 
This graduating class song was I've had the time of my life. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren's from Dirty Dancing. This year. This year. And I I understand. It's like, you know, my class, we graduated in 1996. So using with a little help from my friends, that wasn't exactly current. But the Beatles are timeless. It's okay to use something that's timeless, but not I've had the time of my life. So I just thought that was odd that they would use like a pretty random 30 year old song. I mean, has no one written about a good time since 1987? I mean, even if they had used that Green Day song, Time of Your Life, it's a little closer to where they were, but it's just it just seemed I don't know. It seemed odd to me. But the other thing she was saying was that now the entire chorus sings the national anthem. And maybe that's for the best. I sang the national anthem at my high school graduation and it didn't go well for everyone but me. That's the way I look at it. So so here's here's what happened. I didn't remember that the way I got to sing the national anthem at my high school graduation was I asked if I could. You know how you have memories sometimes where you're already in it and that's just the memory you have. But if you step back to consider, wait, how did I get into that situation? What were the what were the events leading up to that? You're drawing a blank? That. I had no idea how. I asked my mom and she said, well, you just asked them if you could sing it. And they were like, yeah, if only everything were that easy. So I'm going to sing the national anthem. And they tell me that I'm going to sing it a cappella, just me and an echo. They warned me that there was going to be a slight reverb, fractions of a second coming back at me after I sang whatever note. That freaked me out. I was already worried about Oh, having to sing a cappella and you have to be perfectly in tune and all this kind of stuff. And that was already stressful enough. But to know that I may be thrown off on a not very catchy song where you can kind of just sort of ride the wave of how catchy the song is. The national anthem, our national anthem is not catchy. It's hard and it's not musical. And to make it good, it's just it's hard. Appreciate what Whitney Houston did in 1991. So I was worried that that reverb coming back was going to throw me off and then everything was going to be ruined So I got the idea that what I was going to do is I was going to buy earplugs and as like foamy and molding to your ears as possible so that it could cancel out any and all noise but the sound of my own voice in my head. And so I do that. I get the earplugs and I I have rehearsal that day, like, you know, during the day because the ceremony was at night. And I said, I'm going to have earplugs in because I wanted everybody to know how smart I was thinking ahead. I said, I'm going to have earplugs in. So I'll need to know ahead of time if the mic is on, like, is this the the on position of it and everything? And they said, yes, the mic is on. I talked into it. The mic was on. And I saw that the switch was in the I'm going to call it the down position. So like, you know, closer to the bottom of the microphone. And that seemed to indicate that the mic was on. Great. I am ready, Freddy. So that night we're walking out. For graduation, we're marching across the field. I have David Bowie's space oddity in my head, so it's already off to a good start. And we sit down and they do the opening remarks and then they say, and now the national anthem sung by Dana Rossi. And I had the earplugs in, but not pressed in. So at this point it was press. I've already heard my intro, press. And I go up and I take my position at the podium and I look at the mic, switch, down position. Wonderful. And I start to sing. And I have this friend that I have had since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. It's the first friend I remember having, my friend Robin. And she's not doing anything. She's not waving her hands or indicating anything. There's just, when you know somebody very well, there's just, you can just look at their face, even if their face seems to be blank to anybody else, and you know something is wrong. And that's what I saw looking at Robin, is that something was wrong. Because mind you, all I can hear is my own voice in my head. So I know immediately 
that the only thing that could possibly be wrong is that the mic isn't on. I take one earplug out and it doesn't sound on. I'm still singing, by the way. I take the other earplug out and it's definitely not on. And I'm so mad and I'm exhausted because I was 18 and so old and was anything ever going to go right for me? You know, that. And so just exasperated and thinking I had done all the planning that I could possibly do and I'm still in a situation. I'm still in a situation where the one thing I didn't want to happen has happened. The mic is not on. And so I was in the perfect position for when I'll show you. And I waited and I got through the verse right before and the rocket's red glare. Switch. I turn the mic on and I blast everybody on and the rockets. I got to see the entire bleachers where everybody was sitting. And below that, the rows of graduates all in unison recoil. Just everybody, ah, backdraft. And then I continued the song and people just laughing and clapping during it. And I'm done. And I get to, and the home of the brave. And there is as much, if not more, laughing than clapping when I reach the end. And I guess that's the question is like, are you allowed to ever be funny during the national anthem or are you immediately a traitor? I don't know. I do know this, though. In that conversation about the graduation that my mom saw this year, she said that one of the students who spoke talked about the importance of our voices being heard. I don't know. Maybe it's just that that's another difference because my generation was always so much more about show, don't tell. All right. Yeah, I was so dramatic, wasn't I? That like on my walk out to the field to take my place before I was singing the national anthem that in my head, musically, I'm I'm likening that to space travel. So I was a little dramatic. Okay, our story for this episode is from actor Brian Silliman. Look for him in an episode of Orange is the New Black this season. And this is a very rare in-studio story about Brian's assertion with proof that sports and musical theater do not mix. Musical theater and sports do not go together. I don't care what TV show you're watching. I don't care what Glee tells you. If in the middle of a basketball game, one or more of the players start singing and dancing about getting their heads in the game, I imagine they'd get some kind of penalty. You know, his coach would stereotypically yell at him because if you're singing, dancing, or both, your head is most likely not in the game. Your head is in musical theater, and musical theater and sports do not go together, and more importantly, should never, ever be done at the same time. I'm not talking about damn Yankees. Everyone's always like, what about damn Yankees? That goes together. Well, no, I'm not talking about that. That is a musical about sports. That is not what I'm saying. It should never, ever be done at the same time. I have a dent in my leg as physical proof. 
Now, I used to be a skier. I started skiing during a Boy Scout ski trip, and I enjoyed it so much that my family and I started doing it regularly. I was still very clichédly trying to figure out who I was, but thankfully, I was reaching the end of my Dallas Cowboys starter jacket-wearing phase. I played my viola, and surprisingly, that didn't make me very popular, despite the lessons I had taken away from watching Amadeus. My high school as yet did not have a ski team. Long Island, in general, did not have very many ski teams. Uh, it's kind of flat, you know. But uh, sports seemed to be the answer to fitting in. Everyone and anyone who played some kind of sport fit in. So, I decided to join the track team. Anybody who knows me even just a little bit will tell you that I don't enjoy running. Worse, I look like a dick when I do it. Like an actual dick. I wouldn't run for a bus, a bus I was late for, a bus that had Naomi Watts on it, yet I decided to join the track team where running is not only expected of you, it's pretty much all you do. Now, I wanted the popularity of the jacket and the hop hog crested warm-up shorts, but I didn't necessarily want to run. I didn't have a burning desire to run. There was nothing chasing me except for, you know, bad dreams and fear, uh, but that chases everybody, you know, it's like a casually jog away from that. I didn't want to run. It was pretty clear that pretty fast that not only did I not like running, I was in fact really, really crappy at it. Looked bad, was bad. Uh, they decided to train me for the race walk, but then at the very first meet, they had me run the 400-yard dash instead. I was still finishing when the next race began, so I quit the track team and thought that maybe I should try something else. You know who always seemed to have fun? All those musical theater kids. Mrs. Mealy's class is going to see that Broadway show about the French Revolution in a month or so. Maybe I should go. So I went. We made the usual stop over at South Street Seaport, where I bought an Australian Bushman hat with the sides stuck up. And then it was on to the show, which apparently was called Les Miserables, a three-and-a-half-hour musical about the French Revolution. I mean, oh, God. I mean, walking into the theater suddenly had me questioning my desire to go. Three-and-a-half hours? Was this going to be the most boring thing I'd ever seen? More boring than church. Even church is in three and a half hours. Even the synopsis and the playbill seem boring. Who is this woman, Jean Valjean? What a stupid name. Why should I care? Did I make the right decision buying that hat? Is it too small? It is a large. I think I have an extra large head. Yet this hat is a large. That's all I had. Is it secure in my bag beneath my seat? Is someone going to see it? Is the show boring? Well, you know, if the show is boring, I guess I can sit and think about that girl that I like so very much. But I didn't think about her once. Despite how people nowadays seem to relate this show to some kind of historical theme park attraction, Les Miserables was one of the most joyous, exciting, powerful things my much younger self had seen. I got the soundtrack and would play it constantly, often singing along, much to the horror of my very supportive yet very worried parents. And I began to become obsessed with the tale of Jean Valjean and one song in particular that always seemed to inspire huge lines of thought, do you hear the people saying, question mark, it's part of the title of the song, there is a question mark, basically asks a question and then never bothers to listen to the response. This fascinated me. The lyrics, of course, you might know, but if you don't, here they are, they go like this. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again, when the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum. There's a life about to start when tomorrow comes. So, if you aren't hearing the people sing, the rest of the stanza tells you what you're missing. 
Who is this person singing this song and who is it being sung to and what would the dialogue sound like if this person who was being sung to was actually allowed to respond to the person singing at them instead of being mansplained? You know, perhaps it would sound a little something like this. Do you hear the people sing? Yes, they're right in front of me. It's getting late. Uh, maybe you shouldn't sing so loud. <laughs> singing the song of angry men. Yeah, I, I, I can tell they're angry. Um, I'm getting a little angry myself. It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. Yeah, I didn't ask. And anyway, it's four in the morning and I have work tomorrow, so... When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum. You would probably have heart problems and health insurance is very hard to come by here in the French Revolution. Okay? There's a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Okay, I'm calling the police. The thing is, despite these gaps in logic, I really did and still do love this song. Now, I remember writing the lyrics to it on a desk in my earth science class. And of course, the next day, the lyrics were changed. And they were changed to, do you hear the penis sing? Singing the penis, penis, penis. So it's like, what? could you imagine like a huge chorus of Broadway singers singing that version? It, it, it would be a little subversive. It changes the whole thing. It's fascinating. This version, the old version, all of these these thoughts, you know, they're racing around in my head as my family and I went up to the Poconos for another skiing excursion. I was a pretty bad golfer, and as I found out, one of the worst track team members of all time. If you've been there, you would agree. But at least I could ski. Now, my father and I skied for a few days, and my mother shopped at the outlet center, and everybody's pretty happy, all three of us at once, which was rare but not unheard of. I still had Les Miserables running through my head all the time, and while skiing, I would often switch between singing that song and pretending I was in the middle of the Battle of Hoth. The last day passed without incident. For the final run of the day, we decided on a course called Demat's Demise. It was only a blue square, but I love the course because of the name. I loved imagining who this man Demat was and how he met his so-called demise. I wondered why also. You know, they keep the course open if somebody named Demat had met their demise there. Like, a person died here. Uh, this man, like Jacques Demat, or whatever his first name was, he died on this slope. He's dead years ago. And not only are we going to keep it open, we're going to put his name on it. It's kind of like advertising in a way. And we're only going to make it a square. It's not even a particularly difficult course. It's like, so he died on an intermediate slope. And also, like maybe it wasn't even skiing. Maybe he just, somebody just shot him. Like he was just on this hill in summertime and somebody just shot him there. You know, and the possibilities are endless, really. That's what these names conjure in your head, at least if it's a good name. So you'd think they'd shut it down anyway out of respect for the dead is what I'm saying. But in retrospect, I'm just glad my skiing accident happened on DeMatt's demise, whereas my father's accident years before happened on a slope called Powder Puff. Now, most of the crowds had gone home, and I was tearing down the slope, just like DeMatt probably did back in the day, either skiing or trying to get away from the imaginary guy chasing him with a gun. This called for a triumphant song. Do you hear the people sing? No, I don't hear them sing. I'm skiing too damn fast, and the fastest fuck out here. I can even outrun those AT-AT walkers on the North Ridge, singing the song of angry men. It is the music of a people that will not be slaves again. Oh, it's the jump. I love the jump. Hit the jump, land the jump. Awesome! Nailed the jump. When the beating of your heart, my heart is breathing pretty fast, probably because I'm hurtling down a fucking mountain. Echoes the beating of the drum. Wow, that guy ahead of me is going really slow. There's a life about to start. That's when my right ski hit a huge chunk of ice. 
Something I would have seen, were it not for the freak show my imagination was thrusting upon my mind. Between Hoff, the people singing the French Revolution, and DeMatt running away from the gunman, there was a lot going on. There's a life about to start when I couldn't get it back. In front of me, approaching all too quickly, was a thin thing of a man in a 70 ski suit. I'm out of control. I'm gonna run right into him. What had Dad said? If you're gonna hit another skier, always shout either on your left or on your right when approaching so that at least have a shot of avoiding you. That logic must have failed me completely because at the time, all I did was screech at the top of my lungs the words, look fuck out. There's a life about to start when tomorrow, bam. I crashed right into the man in the 70s ski suit and bounced effortlessly off of him. One of my skis stuck in the snow, snapped off and sent the rest of my body, now being propelled by only one ski, directly into the patch of very rocky woods that separated this slope from the one next to it. I remember wondering if this is where DeMatt had fallen. I remember thinking I was going to fall myself. I remember being embarrassed at what the last song I was singing was, and I remember my face smashing against a plastic snow machine, my body being thrown in every conceivable direction, and my leg gashing hard upon a collection of wickedly jagged rocks. Now, the man in the 70s ski suit began lecturing me from the top of the rocky ravine about proper skiing etiquette, and in between bouts of screaming for him to shut the hell up, I was loaded by the newly arrived ski patrol into one of their snowmobile stretchers, a device I had always wanted to ride in, with the excitement of finally doing so, only slightly diminished by the insane throbbing in my leg. It felt like a dent. I remembered what had sent me off course in the first place, that chunk of ice and that damn song. Why would I sing that song while engaging in dangerous downhill winter sport? Why couldn't I keep my head in the game? What if I had died? I mean, why, why, why did I bring musical theater and sports together? Why did I do them at the same time? Why couldn't I keep my head in the game? Now, after being inspected by the ski patrol, I remember very clearly the lead doctor asking my father, How well does your son handle pain? To which my father responded with, Um... They, quote-unquote, closed my wound, which is now revealed after the cutting away of my snow pants to be a huge gash in the front of my shin. And I am not exaggerating here. It was a gash. It looked like a rocky sea ravine, only small and red and on your leg. And I understood why the doctor had asked my father what he did, because closing the wound hurt with the flaming power of a son being fueled by the rageful passion of one billion cloned French revolutionaries, and boy were they pissed. And it looked particularly bad. It looked about as bad as I looked trying to run a 400-yard dash. So I just laid back as my wound was closed, and I looked at the snow falling outside. I heard the medics working. I heard the lift running outside, but most of all, however, I heard the people sing. Yes, Brian Silliman. And you know what, though? I will buy that sports and musical theater do not go together. He proved that point very well. But you know what goes great with musical theater? Mowing the lawn. I have proof because when I was a kid and we had two acres of grass and I used to have to mow it on my dad's rider mower, I could get through the entirety of the score of Phantom of the Opera, singing it as loud as I possibly could. And I wasn't distracted at all. Although, to be fair, I was on a rider mower. Maybe if I had been singing musical theater and, and operating a push mower, I would not have a foot today. 
And that's it. That's our episode for this go-around. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, if you are in or near New York City on Monday, June 22nd, we are doing a very special Soundtrack Series at QED at our usual venue. But it's special because it's the all-goth Soundtrack Series in honor of the publication of Soundtrack Series favorite David Crabb's book, Bad Kid, which is about him growing up gay and goth in Texas. Look for it in bookstores, airports, get it on your Kindle. David is amazing. And so we're doing an all goth soundtrack series in honor of Bad Kid, hosted by me and David. Holy crap, it's going to be amazing. As always, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook. Did you know about Spotify? You can find us on Spotify, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. 